Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Jody Shaw. Jody is a student support coordinator at Smith College. I became aware of Jody because of a video she put out uh, regarding uh, statements that the university put out about racism and this adult this leads back to an incident that happened in 2018. Hey Jody, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Obed. So yeah, if you want to go through the like how this all started and then just go from there. Really it started for me in, on July 31st, 2018 when a black student accused a white staff member of racially motivated behavior. The college spent a lot of money and a lot of time doing a very thorough investigation through an independent counsel which found no evidence of racial bias. And yet, from the very first day, the accusation was leveled that the college went into overdrive to support a narrative that something horribly racist had happened on campus and that um, we needed to have all kinds of initiatives, councils, um, committees, especially discussions and dialogues about race. And um, these dialogues and discussions are troubling because uh, they they're based on critical race theory and they assume that racism is everywhere and that white people are racist simply by being white and that people who are not white, the polite word is person of color for a non-white person, um, are oppressed and are victims and marginalized. And so it essentially is just saying that, you know, and there's nothing you can do about these things. They're, they're, your, skin co- your skin tone is your fate, in essence. And so um, I feel very uncomfortable at Smith College for a number of reasons talking about my race at work. So I made that known in one of these discussions that was mandated. And I said, you know, I don't feel comfortable discussing my race at work. I'm going to pass. And I was essentially shamed for doing that. I was told that any white person who does not discuss their race when asked to is exhibiting white fragility and as such is committing a power play. So even so that was really the line for me, um, that were, this was not about stifling my speech, this was about seeking to compel me to speak and using shame, because that's what happened, it was a public shame as a tool to compel me to recite a script based upon my race. And so um, I filed a complaint with the college, uh, the complaint was pending, and then George Floyd was murdered, ELN became very active, and in the middle of a pandemic um, in which many staff were facing furloughs in the fall because the college uh, was not going to be open, the college released a four-page document with even more trainings and committees and councils and dialogues and discussions. And so at that point, I realized the college is not, you know, I have a complaint pending. They're not taking this seriously. And I decided to wage an optical campaign because I know optics are very important to Smith College. So I made a video, and that's how I met you, Obey, <laughs> on Twitter. Well, I mean, I, I also saw your interview with uh, Benjamin Boyce. You were talking about this, like, you, they're making you go to these mandated meetings. Like, I don't want to say what the meetings are like, because I wasn't there, obviously. You know, my reading of some of this stuff, especially something like White Fragility, it's not enough that they compel you to speak or they compel you to silence it be quiet, sit down, speak when spoken to and say what you're told to say. It's a mixture of both. It's be quiet when we tell you and when we allow you permission to speak, you can only say these things. Yes, exactly. It's a script. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all performative. Performative, yeah. And, and even that's just uncomfortable. Anything performative is uncomfortable, right? Like, hey, we're going to have an authentic discussion about our feelings or whatever the topic is. 
when it's performative, it doesn't feel comfortable. And then you add something like race to it, something as charged as race, less comfortable. Okay, now I don't know what went on at Smith, um, but some of the stuff I'd seen from, I think his name is uh, Christopher Rufio or Rufo. He was posting out a lot of the stuff that was being done at the federal level and uh, also in Seattle. They would divide the employees up. So white employees went into one room, employees of color went into another room. This is in the name of anti-racism. Was stuff like that done in your meetings or was it just all one big group or how did that work? Not in this meeting, but shortly after that, over the summer, um, my supervisor sent an email out to just the white people in my department. <laughs> so... The beginning of that, um, just the white people, so that we can talk about how we can better support the brown people in the department. And um, so that was a little alarming. And then we also have, um, we have affinity houses on campus, which I don't know, I feel like that's a little different, that's optional. Um, we get into problems is when you have um, beds, for example, available in the affinity houses and not enough beds elsewhere on campus. And so you're housing white students in temporary spaces like living rooms and stuff um, because they say they don't have enough beds um, because they cannot put a white student into the black affinity house for example but the affinity houses like how do you do that because I, I, I mean I, I saw at NYU they wanted to make uh, some dorms segregated but the... yeah it's a state well you can't legally right yeah. because so I talked to my supervisor about that because we had this issue where we had beds available in the affinity house, but we did not have enough beds for students elsewhere. And so I thought, well, can we put these students in the affinity house? Well, no, we can't do it. They're white, you know. And so I said, well, can white people apply? Because people apply to be in the affinity house. They have to explain why they want to be in the affinity house. And I said, well, can white people apply? And she said, yes, but white people would have to explain um, why they would want to live in a an affinity house with um, quote black identified students. So obviously the application process is going to be different for a white person and for a black person. And they're so and legally they can't really keep out a white person. So they're relying on white guilt. White guilt is the glue. They're relying on students to not apply. They're just hoping that they won't. But and they don't. They don't uh, apply. Okay, but I got one question there black identifying students i mean is, yep. is this the thing of like if you don't vote biden you ain't black i mean like what, what do you mean by black identifying <laughs> what does that mean uh, i, I uh, that rachel, rachel yeah exactly or, or what was that, that that there was a few others there was about five or six now there was like i guess it's okay is there five or six there, were, there was about okay, there was at least another three or four this year i think there was four so i think that brings up to five where there were professors and stuff. One of them was, I think she was a Jewish woman from Queens who said she was black. And there's a video of her talking about uh, peop black people who joined the police. And he's, she's like, stitches get uh, snitches get stitches and call basically calling them race traitors. And she, she was a professor. And she got caught out as lying of, of being black. I guess she didn't say I'm black identified. Maybe uh, that would have been. But there was, there was, like I said, a few others that came out like this where they were pretending they were white and they were pretending to be another race. So when you say black identified, like. It's almost inviting that kind of thing, well, right? But I guess for black people to be, to say they're black. Identified, and again, it should, like this was not even, it's not a university, but 
Barry Weiss and Thomas Cheddar and Williams were on Bill Maher. This is a couple of months back. Uh, Thomas Cheddar and Williams is, uh, I think his mother was white. So, you know, he's mixed race. And there was a comment, you know, saying, oh, two, two non-people of color discussing black issues. And it's like, okay, well, you know, he grew up in the States. His father was black. <laughs> you know, he's he's got black family. I mean, you know, he, he looks, you know, he, he looks as black as Obama did. And it's, but no, he's not a black person. Like, like. I think that's what it's like people are mixed race, like where you want to identify i went to university you know you have the the muslim students association the jewish students association you have all these different and fine i get that you know you there was uh especially in montreal there was like you know a large segment of caribbean students so you had a caribbean student association i get that but like an affinity house or a dorm room that is where okay you're crossing over a line now i mean that's separate but equal type of thing i don't know they're optional though so that's different than segregation yeah, right? yeah. okay no, I, I get that it's not segregation it's same thing at harvard yeah. i think it was last year last year i believe there was i'm gonna get this number wrong because because i was looking at some of the things but there were something like 75 colleges with segregated graduations and some of them were purely segregated graduations and others at like Harvard, they had a regular graduation. Then they had a grad, a separate graduation, like a ceremonial thing for students of color. So were the students of color in the first graduation yeah. and then everyone was in the first and they had a separate second one for them. Some places it was actually two separate graduations. So some places that like people, wow, I didn't, I think I heard about this, but I'm, didn't really didn't really connect with it i i'm just trying to imagine that in my head <laughs> like having a graduation it reminds me of the was it basketball where they had two national anthems oh they did the the they started that at the nfl this year uh the the the, the, the black national anthems but you see like that doesn't bother me Okay, the national anthem thing, yeah, because that's been around for a while. It wasn't just something they thought up, right? Like they actually have that song has been around for a while and stuff like that. Um, Kaepernick taking a knee doesn't even really bother me. Like the flag and all that's there, you know, everything that symbolizes his right to protest is in with that flag. Now, if he signed a specific contract with the NFL, that's you know that's a contractual obligation. I don't even want to get into that. Like that's. You know, but as far as like if you're talking about liberty and rights, so I don't really see a problem with the black national anthem per se. Like if it was, you know, they decided to write something on the spot and say, well, we have to sing this now. That's a different story. But just singing that like something that's been and again, I think that goes to part of education. Like you're not if people aren't aware that that out existed, you know, maybe if people were more aware of it and why it was there. You know, that could be part of like history education and I, and I don't mean black history like i don't think they should have that i think they should just have history and when you're discussing you know the you know, the colonial period between the revolutionary war and civil war like talk about frederick Douglass. talk about i don't know i'm here 
was just thinking about what you're saying. So you're saying like, because that's just part of history, right? Harry is part of our. You know, George Washington Carver talked about all everyone talked about Harriet Tubman in the times when they were alive. So because I don't have an issue with that. Sorry, I but uh, get, I rant a bit. Getting off that, getting back to. Yeah. That's part of your history. I mean, the song was around for a while. It wasn't just like the song just came up and they said, sing this now. Like if you go back and I, and again, I'm doing it in, you know, I'm not doing a justice cause I, I don't have any information in front of me. And cause when I heard about it, I just looked it up and that's, and I, you know, okay. It's it goes back a little bit and they, they'd had this around for a while. So it's not like it was a, a new thing. So I'm like, why don't I have it? It's not, you know, you're standing for the national anthem. You can stand a little bit longer. It's not a, it's not a big deal or sit or do whatever you want. Um, part of the country. I mean, are people going to complain if they say, uh, you know, if they sing, uh, uh, God Save America or Star, uh, you know, Star Spangled Banner. Both, you know, I guess technically Star Spangled Banner is the, is the national anthem, but it, would someone really freak out if they say, sang, you know, God Save America or God Bless America? Like, but yeah, I just want to get back to Smith. I, I know what you're saying about the Affinity House and stuff, but have you looked into, or do you know if anyone's looked into, like the language that came up with that thing? Is it similar to the language used in your diversity trainings and things like that i don't know i haven't looked at it that closely i know that the affinity houses were very kind of rushed because as i was mentioning before in the lower volume portion <laughs> july 1st 2018 um the student involved with that made some demands i think on her facebook page or maybe a newspaper and that's why i'm able to talk about it um because she she made public that she wanted um, Smith, in addition to a, a number of other demands, she wanted affinity housing at Smith. And my opinion is that that is why suddenly we had affinity housing. Um, in fact, we the college, it was quite a rushed endeavor. Um, so I don't remember no it's probably i think is there something on the website that just says the affinity house i mean you can look it up it just says the affinity houses are open are for are for intended for some kind of community for black identified students and then there's one for students of color um, which i guess also would encompass black identified students technically um and then i think believe there's a clause that, that says they are open to everyone as per law or something like that um, but it doesn't spe specify it's a little bit opaque like it doesn't have the application process on the web on the website <clears throat> so <clears throat> i don't know that a white student would ever challenge it <coughs> like if i hear affinity house again I, if i'm not at smith but i live in the town around or whatever and i just hear they're starting an affinity house for black students Again, I would think that would be something like I said, you know, like the Jewish Students Association. Da, da, da. If, I, if I didn't know that that was like, you know, okay, this is a dorm room. There's, they have beds in here. People can go sleep. Like it's actual like living quarters. That would be different than just a club type of thing. Yeah, it it, it is different. And <clears throat> I remember talking to a student, a student of color, in fact, about the affinity houses before they opened and she was a recent graduate and her contention was she felt like maybe rightfully predicted that 
once you start having breaking down people into groups in this way, like having an affinity house for black students only, then within that group, it's this in-group, out-group thing that happens. Like maybe it's human, I don't know, where students start almost like a competition. I, I don't know, that's not the right word, but like who's black, who's blacker, you know, like, um, and then also issues of like, well, you know, your mother is, is white, so you're not as black as I am. And maybe, oh, your boyfriend's white, so he can't come in here and spend the night in here. And then you have issues with staff too, um, where staff have legitimate concerns given Smith's history with students accusing staff of, of uh, racially motivated behavior. You have um, a very white staff <laughs> um, who are also amongst the lowest paid on campus um, who are going in to clean this house, you know, and, and service it, facilities people who um, have some fear, you know, um, that maybe they're not, they're not welcome here and, and maybe they're not welcome, but, um, you know, houses do need to get cleaned and things do break. And so I can empathize with the concern of those staff, um, because we've seen what happens when a staff member is accused, um, that the college will maintain that it, it was a racially motivated incident, even if is later found not to be. So there's that. I mean, there's all kinds of concerns. There's this in-group, out-group thing, and then this having white staff work in these houses. Like, is that okay? I don't know. Maybe it's it's not okay. So like in principle, I'm not really, I mean, look, Smith is a women's college, right? Or as some would say, historically women's college. It's It's technically officially a women's college. In a sense, we're already excluding men, right? So I, I'm not against it in principle. So I'm not going to say like I'm against affinity housing. But then they also have the issue of affinity too. Like when I think of affinity, the fact that we've conflated this to mean immutable characteristics as if um, if we share a skin color, we automatically have so much in common or we share a culture. And that that's like, I don't assume that. Um, and I I, so I don't like this conflation of the word affinity with like race that, and that's kind of like the Biden thing, right? You, you, if you ain't black, it's like that all black people vote Democrat or something when that's just not true. Like, so I have the problem with the affinity and we have affinity groups for staff too. And I was really troubled by that because it wasn't like black knitters or Asian, um, I don't know, Asian watercolor painters. It was like just Asians blacks <laughs> um you know it was like it was like like you have an affinity by sharing a skin color that that no whole no concept is really troubling i think you know the the statement that the i think it was your school was your the president that put out from smith and you know the, the language again it's all about unity and you know inclusiveness and this and that. like if you like take a look at the 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 motto of the united states you know e pluribus unum out of many one this is the exact opposite. It's out of one many. So you have the Smith College community, and then you're just splintering that down. I mean, you know, yes, like you, you mentioned, people will do it anyways. You know, you have cliques in high school. You'll have cliques in each, each classroom. You'll have all that. To actually break it down by out of curiosity, like, because, yeah, I mean, we, we had spoken before, but there was a problem with the audio. But um, I mentioned, like, Benjamin Boyce's series on Evergreen, and it talks about, it talks about the, you know, he shows the buildup that led to that confrontation with Brett Weinstein in front of his classroom. 
and then everything afterwards with you know where bridges is putting his hands down and all that stuff um like did you notice like did you notice like a build-up to what had happened in 2018 um and how are you like once this stuff started coming in are you seeing relations getting better are things getting tenser like how's that going on there Oh, that's the whole point. Um, I think things are definitely not getting better. Um, it's like the complete opposite. I mean, to me, I mean, it didn't seem like it was hard to logically predict that racial tensions would be increased um, by constantly focusing on race. Um, but I guess Smith doesn't feel that way. And I think what happened on July 31st, 2018, I wasn't only at the college for a year before that. I think that was really a turning point only in terms of, I think the faculty and the students were talking a lot about race and talking about whiteness using this kind of language that, that we're talking about. But I think, feel like it really started to affect staff more when the college kind of turned, turned it onto staff and said, okay, staff, now you've been accused. Um, and, and so now you need to be involved in these conversations too. And so then that, now we're including staff in our quote community umbrella like you can no longer just come to work and go home because uh, you're white and you need to participate in this and be held accountable and so on and so forth um if anything i see that incident as a build-up to what's going on now with me <laughs> um but maybe it's because i keep bringing that incident up i don't know but I think Benjamin Boyce, I think that's, I mean, I think this is like kind of a common notion, right? That if you do this, it makes it, it's, it becomes like a pressure cooker, right? And then something happens that maybe is benign, even if you, if it was in a vacuum, but in the, against the context of these, this highly hyper-racialized community, it just explodes. The, the more I read of it, it's, I mean, there's there's no way to any anything based on this ends well like you said it's hyper focused on race and at the same time it's focusing on who's oppressed whom it separates people then okay you were, you'd mentioned okay in one of those affinity houses people are going to start breaking apart anyways and you have that in the united states now you have like the thing like uh the ados american uh africans descendant of slaves so they're there's a thing okay they get reparations no other black americans get reparations which i can you know have an understanding for but then part and parcel with that is comes along that anyone who comes here as an immigrant so it doesn't matter that you could be your family had escaped the genocide in rwanda no no no. you don't know what it means to be oppressed and you're not a you know you don't have the black american experience so you're not you are actually an immigrant and you're part of the colonizer and you're helping to colonize over the black people who are descendants of slaves. One other thing that this is a very, very small segment that says this, it's not like very pervasive, but it's still there. And it's in the literature. Slaves that were brought over to the United States because their labor helped the colonizers and the, you know, the white colonizers killed off the indigenous people. Slaves are responsible for the indigenous genocide. Wrap your head around that. This is somebody, this is in the literature somewhere. It was a paper written about this and it's like post-colonial stuff. And it also, you know, comes out of like the term like BIPOC. So black indigenous and people of color, black and indigenous people were more oppressed than people of color, other people of color. So now you're 
you know, you're ranking everything out. And so now here the indigenous people were wiped out. And so they suffered more than the black people, the, the, even the slaves. And like I said, it's, it's very, very ludicrous logic. And it, that's a perfect example of what happens when we do this and we start drilling down and making finer and finer distinctions. Uh, there's one thing I, cause you'd mentioned it uh, before, like the university gone into furlough um, and then they're adding all these diversity courses. I saw the salary. I, I don't know if it was your president or if it was like a, one of these diversity people it was like, go six yeah that's the president there was one recently it was i want to say somewhere in michigan i don't have it in front of me so dean or the vice president and you're also the diversity officer three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars a year uh seven hundred or seven hundred and fifty dollars a month uh car allowance and a twenty five thousand dollar signing boat i think i saw that okay now all this talk about the student loan i, I can understand i had friends who took out when a huge debt for school part of the problem with student loan is this bloke do you see that at smith or well no i mean like i, I can't remember i think it was yale where at one point i think they said they had more administrators than they had other staff oh my gosh yeah it's yeah bloat is a good word i guess i mean these people are getting paid a lot of money and as, as somebody pointed out to me with this the video that i made and subsequent videos about the college, you know, attempting to distance itself from me as much as possible, that it's not, this, she was speculating that it might not necessarily be so much about an ideology, like, oh, well, she doesn't share our ideology as it is about their jobs. Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I mean, these are very lucrative positions um, and they come with a lot of other benefits, I believe, Smith. Yes, I think there's bloat. And I think that when you have that, people, you know, there's a lot to lose is, is what I'm saying. Um, and so any, any threat or perceived threat, um, I think the heels are going to dig in. It's not going to be like, like here I am trying to have a conversation when really like there are people who are just trying to like keep their jobs. <laughs> like I, they see me as a potential threat. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating. A friend of mine was speculating on that and it made me yeah. personalize it and humanize it a lot in a way, a lot more for me. Oh, no, I'd see it. But at the same point, too, let's take this person $315,000 a year. Oh, we're doing so much for diversity. We're doing so much for the underprivileged. If you took that 315000 and you invested it in, I don't know, more bed, subsidized meals for low-income students, I don't understand. Like that. That's where it gets me. Like, I, I, like I speak, uh, spoken to this uh, teacher out of Texas, and she started this thing called uh, Clear the List. Basically, teachers make wish lists, and the teachers make wish lists and people can go buy them stuff and it's you know this is for elementary schools and high schools and some of the things i see on there they're um, i think they call them title one schools so they're underprivileged neighborhoods and you know like lower income neighborhoods and stuff teachers are asking for pencil sharp if the school's hiring administrators diversity administrators and this and that for that kind of money but they can't put pencil sharpeners in their classrooms there's a problem and i think that's part of the issue with universities as well you know harvard's like 50 60 grand a year think that is like how does it happen this kind of thing why create a problem you say that things are wrong and i'll show you how to fix it okay if you want my tinfoil hat theory on this is this stuff came out okay critical race theory came out of critical legal theory at harvard law and they were looking at some serious issues and Derek bell when he wrote a couple of things he, he made some good points like he said that with brown versus the board of education what they should have done was desegregate desegregated education not necessarily the schools that makes sense to me but then he goes on to say that they should have kept segregation. They should have kept everything apart. Blah, blah, blah. But when it mixed with intersectionality in the 90s, 
And then you had a lot of this other stuff coming out. I mean, there was a lot of background into this. The first people who had this latest iteration of critical race theory intersectionality degrees came out in the late 90s. Like I'm talking about like, like, you know, doctorates, like graduate and doctorate level. They start going into media. They start going into government. They start coming back into university because, okay, uh, 2000, 2001, 9-11 happens. Bush, you know, the whole Islamophobia thing. You're racist if you're a patriot. I mean, after like about the first six months, all this stuff. So Bush is like, okay, we'll push back on racism and Islamophobia. So they go get a PhD in sociology or a PhD in African studies or something. But okay, I, I focused on race. This is what they were taught this is what they're using, this is how they're taught to think, and it just slowly and slowly builds up until about 2010 when it starts getting into high schools and later into middle schools, and it's just the colleges of education have been taken over since about the 80s. Yeah, like I'm, like I said, a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory here, but you can see it kind of, so that's, that's where it comes from, and these people need victims. Like, like you said, this thing says, how did racism take place? So racism manifests itself in Every two people, you could be walking down the road and there's a black person walking in the opposite direction, right? So you're both on the sidewalk. You're going east, they're going west. You know, your paths cross, you both smile and nod and you keep going. You smiled and nodded because you're white and you know that you're more privileged and you're better placed and they have to show you that obedience. A black person smiled and nodded because they just want to get by and they don't, they don't want to be attacked and there's racism in that. That's how this stuff looks at everything. So they're going to find problems everywhere and they need the victimhood to earn a paycheck. Candy getting $10 million from Twitter and then $20,000 a pop to speak. It's a nice way to make a living. I think about, about Robin D'Angelo a lot, like how brilliantly she exploited white guilt, you know? Twisted the knife of white guilt, and then oh, look 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 up Syra Rao. Who? She's like uh, Syra Rao. I think it's S A I R O Rao R A O. Um, she she gets white women to read White Fragility, and then you can invite her over to your place with um, I think like up to like four of your friends. And it's twenty five hundred bucks a pop. Where she comes over to your house, you make her dinner, or you feed her dinner. And then you have a, you discuss white fragility and she sits there and tells you how awful you are for being white women and people pay her for this. Like a paid exorcism or something. Like oh God. Yeah. It's 2,500 bucks a pop. <laughs> well, I mean, that's worth it, right? It makes you feel better. Like you're, you've done, like you're less racist than your, than other white people because you've had this blessing or exorcism uh, done to you by this person. Uh, <laughs> but yeah it's brilliant i have to say <laughs> oh whatever maybe, you know maybe things don't work out at smith you got a career change in, in the college like um, completely alone Do you I have some support like, like how's that i we are establishing some back channels yes um some of my colleagues um most of the colleagues who with whom i spoke about this topic before the video I have not really spoken to since the video. They they kind of disappeared, and I understand that you know they don't want to be associated with me. It's a little too close to home, and there's just such extreme fear associated with this. But other people have reached out to me that I did not know before, and I'm very happy about that. And I'm focused on that um, because um, that's kind of, that's the purpose of the video, really. I mean, if I want to improve working conditions, I need to work in concert with other staff and um and faculty um and so i'm happy about that i can't i can't say it's been an avalanche of support from, from smith 
Um, but I will say there's been an avalanche of support from people elsewhere. And I think that's because it feels safer to them to reach out to somebody from another institution. Like, let's say somebody from Wellesley, I think if they feel okay reaching out to me at Smith, but they probably, maybe they wouldn't feel as safe reaching out to somebody like a colleague at Wellesley who had done the same thing. Um, there's just some distance there. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Um, but I do feel very alone. Um in many ways I've been exiled, but to be honest, I really felt that way for a while now. Um, there's something really tragic about walking around and, and feeling like something's wrong and you're not totally on board with this mandated ideology and you, and, and feeling like maybe people will find out that I'm not totally on board with this and that this worry that's associated with that. And then this, impulse to kind of dive in and dig in even more to prove that you're on board because now you're worried that people might find out that you're not like to use compensation and to me i just i feel like that's a very special kind yeah. of psychic damage that you're doing to yourself um when you're just lying to that extent and uh look you should um you should look into uh people from a fundamentalist faith so like look like there's videos like afterwards if you want like videos from um, ex-muslims then you can also look at like orthodox and hasidic jews jehovah's witnesses so when you're listening to and i mean i did a little video like this a while ago and it's just you know for the five or six years where i stopped believing but i didn't tell my folks because i mean there is such a stigma attached to apostasy, apostasy in islam i mean the, the punishment is death there's 13 countries that will kill you for that you know? uh, so it's uh so you're living a complete lie and like you said you're being forced to do this stuff that you don't believe or you're forced to just at least not along it's no it's it's, ah, it's like a horrible, beyond horrible, horrible feeling it, like, it almost makes you get like i feel like it, it's crazy making like i started to feel this paranoia creeping in you know like people might be able to read my thoughts or something <laughs> i am not um i i to me i was like okay this is this is a sign that something is really not right the fact that i'm thinking this way and feeling this way yeah no it's it's not good um what about the town like i i know you've mentioned this before just cover that like like the town um you're saying they don't really know much about what happened except the official statement but like I, I, again i still don't get that like if the state university puts out a statement saying there's no racial there was no evidence of racial you know any kind of racial impropriety or whatever or racism in this incident but it was still racial like i, I don't understand how they can like how do people buy that like it's i think because they, they part of this is like <clears throat> the left right thing too it's like <clears throat> people are so afraid i mean people on the left where I position myself um, as a liberal or classic liberal are so afraid of being associated with the right or being perceived as being on the right by other people on the left that anything, it's almost like anything that comes from the left is automatically just good. And there's no, if you examine it or question it, well, guess what? Now people are going to say, well, you're total, you're extreme right wing or whatever. And the fear, I think that, that that causes people to just kind of go along with things and they don't question it because even questioning it, like I said, even in your mind is like, 
a scary prospect to think, oh my God, what if I'm, what if I'm a, a right wing white supremacist? Oh my God. And so I, I, I think that's like really unhealthy. And also the town, when the, the July 31st, 2018 happened, um, the, one of the staff members wrote, of course, the Gazette covered the students, I believe this, the Gazette covered it um, as a racial incident or race, racially motivated incident. And one of the staff members wrote a letter to an open letter to Smith College saying, you know, how you handled this was wrong and you've now created an environment of real hostility for staff. And now staff are definitely not going to, you know, talk to students. They, they won't do anything. They won't call campus police and they won't talk to the student. They'll just ignore it, which that leads into all other kinds of problems potentially. And the, the college did not acknowledge her letter and the local newspaper would, I'm going to say their name, Hampshire Gazette. You, you guys need to get your act together. You wouldn't publish her letter. This is like a big deal that an, a staff member is say, making these kinds of statements and you refuse to publish it. And that just goes to show the power that Smith College has in this little teensy tiny town. This It's a huge employer. It's a huge driver of the local economy. So even the local newspaper, I that was a fear, a fear-based decision not to publish that letter. Of course, later they did cover it because the letter got a little traction. They didn't print, reprint the letter, but they commented on it. To me, that's a huge failing of journalism. And so the newspaper has not gotten involved in this at all, the local newspaper. I don't even know if my... I think my neighbors are probably oblivious to it. Not much. And plus we're, we're in a lockdown pretty, I mean, it's not official, you know, we're not, people aren't hanging out and it's getting better. So yeah, I don't know what's going on out there. I do. I will say that like, I was thinking, oh gee, I should like go get my haircut. And I was like, mm, I don't know if like, if I, I hope they don't recognize me. <laughs> I don't know if we should keep this in here, but like, <laughs> I'm just like, I do worry. I'm like, cause these you know, one thing I want to say, I know this is changing topic, but it goes back to the left-right thing, this rigid, rigid left-right, like where we can't even examine what's coming out of the left because we're so worried we're going to be placed on the right. And to me, that's very dangerous because then anything goes. But, you know, my message has not changed. Like nothing has changed about what I'm saying. But I went on Tucker Carlson because Tucker invited me on his show. You know, Tucker's very much individual against the mob. I don't agree with everything Tucker says. I agree with some of the things he says. And, um, but my message hasn't changed. And I got a lot of people writing to me saying, you know, I was with you right up until you went on Tucker. <laughs> and now I'm not with you anymore. And I'm like, well, nothing about me has changed or my message has. And, you know, people saying, well, how come you didn't go on a, you know, a different news outlet? It's because, well, I wasn't invited and that should be troubling to you. Like, why, why am I not invited? So that, that's really troubling to me. That when you mentioned, I've talked about this. So right after 9-11, two days afterwards, George Bush, you know, George Bush Jr. says, Islam is a religion of peace. It just went on and on and on. This had nothing to do with Islam, blah, blah, blah. When people spoke, and again, it was the, you know, someone like Ayn Hirsi Ali, who was a part, you know, in the Dutch parliament. She had grown up in Somalia. She fled forced marriage. You know, she uh, suffered FGM. Now she's in the States and she's speaking out again, or she was still, she was in the hall, Netherlands still, and then she's speaking out against Islam and she wrote her Infidel was her first book, or maybe it's Heretic, I can't remember. And the left-wing media wouldn't touch her. So she went on Fox and she got a, and then when she came to the States, she got a job at a right-wing think tank. Same thing. Oh, if you sp speak out against Islam, it is 
right-wing talking point. It's either either you're right-wing or you're using right-wing talking point. With this, like the critical race theory and all that stuff, I'm seeing the same thing happening. I learned about this, A, from reading the stuff, but B, the people I learned about it from were, you can't call them anything but left. Watched uh, the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks back, or maybe three weeks ago now. And uh, it was before the election, so I'm trying to remember exactly when, but wrote an article about how criticisms of critical race theory are only coming from the right. And I'm like, that's bullshit. It's the exact same thing. And like one other parallel I'll make, ex-Muslim got all kinds of smears uh, or even reform Muslims. Someone like Majid Nawaz, you know, was told that he was uh, Uncle Tom, a porch monkey. They called him a coon. They called him a house monkey. It's like it's okay to do that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was perfectly fine. Uh, native informant, uh, race traders. And then like I see people like, uh, you know, Chloe Valdery, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, I've mentioned before, Camille Foster, uh, Coleman Hughes, like Glenn Lowry, like you can just list them all off Candace. Same thing. And then the, the things I see for Candace uh, and even like some like ex-Muslim women I know who are speaking out some, against some of this stuff, it's same thing I saw with Muslim, you know, ex-Muslim women or reform, women, or reform Muslims who were women. They would say things like, you're just doing that for uh, infidel cop. And now with the BLM thing or the, the critical race theory thing, oh, oh, you're just doing that because you want white cock. It's the same shit. It's the, ex it, it's, it's the same playbook. Yeah, of course it's disgusting. Yeah, these are very, these are racial slurs. No, but I mean, okay, like I don't like Candace Owens. I think personally, like I find her an odious person. I, th I think she spreads a lot of garbage, but I don't want to see her get rape threats. And I think people who send her rape threats are disgusting. They're, you know, they're the ones who will snap their fingers and say community love. <laughs> yeah, yeah but i mean it's 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 ridiculous um okay sorry i i, I know like i said i rant a bit but I, I brought this up because i was i wanted to i want to ask you about this was <laughs> yeah i mean to call it hypocrisy is really kind <laughs> now trump did that executive order and if you actually take your time to read that executive order it is very well written it doesn't mention critical race theory it doesn't mention it just basically says you you know you can't have training in government offices or government contractors separate by race sex blah blah blah, blah. you know like all that stuff like you cannot you cannot privilege one or 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 uh, demonize another you can't do any of that stuff in these trainings which if you read it, it's really really well written now there's talk of biden scrapping which would be a huge thing i not very upsetting yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm in Canada. I'm not in the states. I got my own problems up here with this crap. Like our government's got this full board. Would you even consider speaking to other people in similar positions as yourself at different colleges and maybe making a coalition of some kind to you know put some pressure on Biden to you know keep that executive order because oh Trump did it. It's got to be bad. Tragic, isn't it? It almost would have been better if he didn't. I mean, it was the right thing for him to do, but yeah, yeah but I mean. You know, damned if you, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But if he's going to get rid of it, he has got to give a reason why. And like, why is he like the language in it is great. Like, if you just bring up that language, no, it's almost like you're for racism if you're against it. It's just it's incredible. <laughs> well, it's it's not, it's not even so much lobbying. Like, start up a petition. You know, get a bunch of people, and then you know. Chris Rufo, I mean, he's, I think I've seen him on Twitter, at least advocating, you know, putting as much pressure as possible. Yeah, I, I would like, I don't know, I would like to do something. I mean, you're, now you're talking about lobbying. I, I feel like 
I mean, it's open. The comments are open right now, I think until the end of December. People can, and I was actually planning on sending some stuff in. Um, people can comment on it now. And I don't know if Biden will look at that stuff or if he'll just throw away the whole thing. I feel like, I feel like it would have an impact though, because I don't know if Biden has really even read it, right? Or even understands what it is. Um, Biden nor Trump knows what the hell critical race theory is, knows what any of this stuff, like, you know, um, and Trump obviously did not write that <laughs> executive order because there's just no way that came out of Trump. Trump at least is going to put on a bay front and he's going to say stupid things like, you know, I don't want a Trump-led patriotic school curriculum for kids. I don't want that either. But Biden is going to be like George Bridges. He's going to stand there and when they tell him to put down his hands, he's going to put down his hands. When they, he's going to ask permission to go pee. When, when they hand, put a piece of paper in front of him and they say, this is going to help you stop racism and this is a new initiative, he's probably going to read the first couple of paragraphs and read some nice words like diversity and inclusion and all this crap and just sign it. Yep. I don't know, Bate. I'm scared. We need more people on the left who are going to look at this stuff more critically. We can't just keep going along with stuff because it's the left. It's good. We can't. I was going to say, but really, the we shouldn't, we don't even really need the executive order. What we need is um, the judiciary. This needs to go through the judicial process, I think. Um, because we already have a law. It's called the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title Seven. That's we already have viable legal claims. Um, oh no, totally. Look, the NAACP said they wanted to sue. Uh, they wanted to take the uh, the executive order to the Supreme Court. I think they were just waiting until the election happened. So, yeah. So I would love to see them take that there, because how are you going to say that, you know, that there's anything wrong with that? And then if you start bringing, like, I'd like to see critical race theory brought up. Well, they'd have to bring it in to just cool right and they their their whole thing is equity right it says it straight out Derek bell said it kimberly crenshaw said it uh what's his name uh delgado said it kendy says it that the civil rights you know the civil rights act was wrong because it made being racist a bad thing and it didn't go far enough about like they don't like the civil rights act they i mean yeah well, well, no. Well, Crenshaw even said that uh, the problem with the with the liberal ethic, and this was in her paper, the mapping on margins, like the one in ninety one. Uh, she said, like the the problem with the liberal ethic, it is it has a focus on the individual, and you need to bring back an identity based politics. Well, I hope we don't lose the Civil Rights Act um, because I think humanity's you know been around for a while. I think we've tried a lot of these other war, and it's been pretty gruesome. I think you should listen to. Um, it was a late, uh, uh, Megan Kelly does a podcast now and she had Glenn Lowry and Coleman Hughes on. And I, I listened to it yesterday and, um, Glenn Lowry just, she read out a letter then Glenn Ra Lowry just answered it. And like his answer was great, but also just, Joe, you know, they gave you a shout out by the way. Oh yeah. I heard about that. Somebody told me I have to go back and listen to the podcast now. But yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it was, it was, um, you know, you need that. You know, I don't have a huge platform where I can try to like reach you know large numbers of people. I just do it one on one with my friends. I deal with this as if it's a religion and they're being converted to a religion. I'd rather stop them from being converted because it's a lot easier than you know deconverting someone. Like once someone's in a cult, it's a lot harder to get them out if you can stop them. So all I do is like they'll talk about 
white fragility or they'll talk about white privilege or they'll mention anti-racism and they'll use some of these words and I explain what they mean and I say, here's the books I read, read those. I point them to Jane and Lindsay's web, uh, website, their new discourses. So just go on here, check it out. Majority of people read it, they're horrified and they walk away. Really? Like right after George Floyd happened, like I saw friends is... of mine, um, you know, I'm 51, friends who are roughly the same age as my, making comments about white fragility. And these are people I know had never, like I'd never seen them use it once and these are roughly the same age as me. Some of them were working in the oil fields. I'd met some of them working overseas on military bases. You know, like these are not people who went through critical race theory or any of this. Send them a message and just explain some of the stuff. Send them a list of things to read. And they're like, no, this is awful. Okay, there's a book called Acting White. The, the whole prologue of the book is about how Obama acted white and why that was bad and black people shouldn't act white. And then the rest of the book is filled with crap like that, too. But I mean, it's, it's okay. AIDS, it's written by two black people. I mean, uh, telling black people what they should do. The people who wrote that book have been writing K through 12 curricula for school since about 2005. So, so like, what the hell's going into school books? I mean, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be completely, uh, it started getting overt after about 2010. But you had little ideas slipping in before, like just very, very minor things about power differentials and things like that. So it's, I mean, it's you 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 show that book to anyone, unless they're outright racist, or they've you know drank too much of the Kool Aid, they're not going to buy that. And that's like sunlight is the best disinfectant. Disinfectant. Just show them what it is. I don't want to take take light of what's happening to you or to other staff. Or especially the people who got accused of racism. Yeah, that's what I was hoping to do in order to put pressure on the college to improve working conditions. That's going to be a small thing compared to what's going to happen to other students, teachers. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think people don't know what this is. They're not looking at it carefully enough. Again, I mentioned, I spoke about it last time, was the, the book Kindly, Kindly Inquisitor. So. Um, Rauch says there's two two kinds of uh, authoritarian threats. There's the fundamentalist one, and he talks about the fatwa against Salman Rushdie by you know the Ayatollah, and then uh, the the Christian evangelicals. Mm-hmm. But then he said there's a humanitarian threat, which was starting to happen in colleges in the early '90s. That was the political correctness thing, right? Oh, we have to stop racist talk. We have to prevent people from being racist. We have to prevent you know people being hurt by hearing racist things mm-hmm. so the whole idea of harm through um Language. through words and yeah all that that was coming in so he wrote about it and like the, when you read the book it's like holy shit he saw all this stuff coming um so i mean it's been around and you can you can see the how it evolved and you can you can see how things got worse i mean race relations were getting better up until about the late 90s and that's that's why i used like the late 90s early 2000s of when this stuff came into foreign policy because things were getting better and then they turned to shit what a coincidence <laughs> no they did no but like i mean you can kind of look at what okay i know correlation does not equal causation but look when this stuff came in mm-hmm. look when it started going really sour you know like i uh, maybe kind of take a look like I, I still again i still don't understand how people can scratch their heads go why is white supremacy growing when you're getting 
kids and then college students and policymakers to focus expressly on racial identity. Yeah. Instead, well, instead they use it as a reason to dig in harder into it. Self, so it's like a self-feeding feedback loop or whatever you would call self-fulfilling, right? Yeah, it seems obvious to you and me. Wasn't always obvious to me though. I was like, oh yeah, of course. You know, I was like, I'm a liberal. I believe in this stuff. And it wasn't really, I moved up into a very white area that was like hyper, hyper racially conscious and always talking about race that I started to think, oh, this is kind of weird. I'd moved from a major city, no skin color, where I don't know what's going on there now, but certainly there were not these kinds of conversations happening ever. And came up here to western massachusetts which is very very pretty white area at least where i am where it's just everybody's talking about this everybody's talking about race talk about race talk about race that i was like huh this something feels off about this (laughs) i didn't you know i experienced some racism in canada it's not to say i didn't um you know it's small town quebecois can be extremely racist uh okay some Quebecois in Montreal can be extremely racist. Uh, it's just because I'm Quebec, there's a lot more, you know, French Canadians. There's a guy on the news in the late 80s. And I remember this is just because it was so, like, I was with my friends who were like, oh my God, I can't believe you said it. It was like a foreman of a city work crew. And he, he's on the six o'clock news and they're talking about a strike or something. And he's like, my men, uh, you know, uh, they work hard all day long. Uh, they work like niggers. And he said, he said that on the news, and he's like, "No, no, I don't mean wow. that in a bad way. I mean they work like dogs." It's like, okay, like just stop, pal. Um, okay, so like, 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 don't get me wrong. Like, there is racism in Canada. The majority of it that I felt was after the initial PC stuff, and then when this stuff started coming in from well-meaning, left-leaning people, and it was more the bigotry of low expectations, where they didn't want oh, you can't do this unless I help you. It's like, screw you, I grew mm-hmm. up in this country. Like, you know, like, I, you know, I, I'm as Canadian as anyone else, like, whatever. Like, I can, I, I, I'm doing just fine. Like, you know, like, I, it was just this, this attitude of I needed help because I was brown. I, was, I don't want that. Like, I really hate that. And it, it, you get more of that. Like, I have a, more of a problem with that than I do with mm-hmm. actual racism. I mean, and maybe in my case, it's because when I was about 14 or 15, I was taking transit in Montreal and on the back, the seat back in front of me, someone wrote black, uh, white power, black caca. And the only word they spelled correctly was caca. They spelled everything else wrong. I laughed my head off. And ever since then, someone's like used a racial slur at me. Like I think back to that. I'm like, yeah, that's where you are. I'm not going to let it bother me. You know, like, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, if you, so, but like this, this, this underhanded passive aggressive stuff is just, and it, it is demeaning. I mean, it like, you're not going to let anyone, I see it up North. Like I worked with the Inuit and I see, I see it there. Like they keep telling these people they're victims and they like all the programs, everything I saw was to tell them how they were victims, not how to get out of, it doesn't create resilience. Yeah. It's extremely disempowering rhetoric troubling to me i don't want to be telling students that kind of thing i I want students to feel empowered and focus on the great things that they can do and the great people that they are and their individual strengths and focus on what they're doing right and growing and expanding their horizons i it makes me really uncomfortable to be 
told that I need to somehow condescend to a student because they're not white and on the, in the other way to ignore a student because they're white, like ignore that, um, well, they might have some trauma or, um, some, something really serious going on, but, oh, they're white. So that kind of like equals it out, you know, like both things are really disturbing to me. And that's, that's the, the message I'm getting at Smith college. Um, that that's how we treat students. We, we use color as some kind of way to assign status and history to people from the, from the get-go. It's really troubling. And thank you for sharing that. I, I often wonder what it's like. No, I, I joke around with my friends. Like, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. I'll get a job before you because I'm brown. But I, I don't want a job because I, you know, like, like I said, I, it's something you can use to joke about and stuff. But, okay, <laughs> I, I don't know if you can talk about this or not, but I just because you mentioned, I want to ask, like, are you seeing stuff coming down to you about how you should treat students, like, based on their color? Like, is it official or is it just kind of uh, encouraged? Yeah, I mean, look, it it's expected and it happens. I mean, it was even in the in my investigation. My supervisors have a legitimate reason to ask me to consider color in my dot, 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 like <clears throat> dealings with students or dealings with colleagues, consider color. And that's what that means as opposed to considering them, right? <laughs> Who they are and what they actually need. Um, and then <clears throat> often there are interactions in which uh, there'll be a student conflict and the question inevitably is asked, well, what color are the students? Um, so when really, before we even focus on the facts of what has happened, like what are the material issues at stake here? It's like, first we have to find out what color the students are so that we can then assign them a position, I guess. And so it's, it's not written out, but that is the expectation. And that is what I have seen and that is what I've been told that I should, I need to consider color, that that's a legitimate ask. And that to me feels very much like I'm being asked to be racially prejudiced. And that's, that's what it is. That's what they're doing. And I don't want to engage in prejudice. If a student comes to me and says, hey, my skin color, whatever it is, white, brown, whatever, my skin color has had an impact on my life and here's how i'm all ears like i want to hear it but i'm not going to decide that for the student i'm not going to assume that because i don't like to make assumptions anyway especially especially don't like being told i should make them based on somebody's something i can see about somebody because i don't know that their race has had an impact on their life i don't know how and i don't know that it has I mean, how could I possibly know who somebody is or what they need simply based on their skin color until they've told me, right? So that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't give away any actual situations, but... Sure, wrapping this up, but yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. I mean, if you got anything else you want to talk about, I know you got some videos and stuff coming out. Let people know where they can get a hold of you. I'll put links to that. And oh my to... God, thanks. Yeah, I am going to be making another video tomorrow. Cool. So appreciate that obeyed it was really nice to talk to you obeyed i want to stay in touch no for sure um do that and again thanks a lot for coming on and thanks everyone for listening